Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. How do you do? Welcome in to Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 146. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. From the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, where our daily show, Downtown, originates. Every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio, WZONAM.com, downtown with richkimball.com. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of interesting conversations on the program this go-round. In the second half, we talk with a Canadian singer, songwriter, and musician, Gino Vanelli. You know him from uh, big 70s and 80s hits like I Just Want to Stop, Living Inside Myself. He's a guy with a lot of musical interests, classical, jazz, and has done it all through the years. And we'll talk with him about the, the career and, and the road it's taken him on in the second half. In the opening half this week, another interesting guy. You may have seen the name before, well, the way I did. Seen it in credits and said, how do I say that name? P-H-O-E-F. It's pronounced Fief. Fief Sutton, our guest on the podcast. It's a childhood name given to him by his brothers when he was just a baby and it stuck. So he says now everybody in the family calls him that. Everybody knows him as that. And you maybe know that name from his work on on television shows like Cheers, where he won a couple Emmy Awards, a Peabody Award, work on Boston Legal, a number of TV series. He's also a successful novelist who's written several books on his own and has teamed up with best-selling author Janet Ivanovich on a couple as well. We had a very good time talking with the multi-talented Fief Sutton. Fief, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You have had uh, uh, such an amazing career, and um, well, we had a similar start. You just did something with yours. Uh, when I was five years old, my mom gave me a, a, an old royal typewriter, and I began uh, banging out reports for uh, like kindergarten and first grade like nobody's business. But but that was my peak. You, however, took that opportunity yeah. to become a writer. I I had a typewriter when I was a kid, and I used to. I remember I copied uh, Dr. Seuss books and and typed them up, and thought, "Hey, I've written a book now." Um, <laughs> but that, then I realized I had to make up my own stuff. But um, it uh, that 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 was the same beginning. Now you went on to uh, James Madison University, a place I know very well. I broadcast college football. Uh, for the University of Maine and been down to Harrisonburg and that beautiful campus, a uh, campus and wonderful area a number of times. I, I love it yeah. there. And uh, while you were there, you, you got involved with the theater program. Yeah. Well, I, I got involved in theater in, in high school and, um, uh, I acted and, and, and wrote, and, uh, I, I've been writing you know, my whole life. I, I started writing short stories and, sending them away to Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine and Playboy and having all kinds of uh, rejection notices on my on my wall, and I, I never got one accepted. <laughs> <laughs> but um, somehow that didn't disturb, that didn't discourage me. I, I just thought, wow, boy, a rejection slip, that's so great. <laughs> and um, then when I went to Madison, I, um, I uh, started in theater and I wrote plays and, and they were, it was a great, it's a great school because they were very open to doing student plays even for undergraduates there. 
So I had plays done in the experimental theater, and I even had a play done on the main stage there. And uh, uh, I, I was even I was even in one of the plays I wrote, which is a you know a very humbling experience because you have absolutely no one to blame. Uh, <laughs> something you, think, you can't say, "Oh, that actor screwed it up," or "Or who wrote this shit?" You know. There it it, it um, but uh, so I, you know, I had the experience of of writing plays that were done in front of an audience, and I could judge audiences' reactions and uh, you know laughs. Or, as I generally wrote comedies, and um, uh, you know they, you can't argue when they don't laugh. You can't say that was funny. Did you get it? No, no, they either laugh or they don't. <laughs> and that was a great training ground for when I was. Uh, when I went out to do Cheers, because, I mean, Cheers was basically a play. It was, you know, pretty much just that one set, entrances and exits and, and all that, and um, yeah, the bar. And uh, it, so that that was a, a very good training ground for that. Now, before uh, Cheers, I, uh, you got your, your, your script seen by the people at Newhart. Uh, how did that happen? And, and am I right that somehow Don Knotts played a role in all of this? Well, uh, <laughs> um, um, when I moved out, when I, I left, I left uh, graduate school. I went to the University of Florida for graduate school. I left it before I got my degree. Um, uh, I moved to New York for a brief period of time because there was a, a flurry of some interest in a play that I wrote for Broadway, but it never, nothing ever came of it. Because uh, you, you, you realize, of course, as as you were, as you're career as a writer goes on that most of the time there's a flurry of interest in something and nothing happens with it <laughs> that's the that's what that's the standard position that you're in so um uh and then occasionally something happens um but yeah i i, I moved so i moved to la uh because i wanted to be a writer i want to be a film writer or something and um and my my wife's aunt was married to don not and so I, when I first moved to L.A., he was kind enough to uh, let us move into to his house for a few months until we got an apartment of our own. And he was a great guy and, and uh, really wonderful stories and all that. He didn't really, he didn't really help me um, uh, in my career that much because, you know, what could he do? But um, he was doing Three's Company at the time. And um, it was it was a, it was great. It was a great experience for that. But the the way I got the script to Newhart was, you know, the old college connection thing. Uh, there was a a woman that I I knew from college who had been worked on the newspaper in college named Barbara Hall, who wrote for Newhart, and she was a about a year older than me. And um, she since then she does. Uh, Madam Secretary and all all sorts of great shows, uh, but she was just starting on Newhart then. Her sister was working on it too, and uh, she told me about writing a spec script about how you you know the way you because I didn't really think about writing for television per se. I thought well it'll be okay. I don't really know. I didn't really know anything about what I was doing, but uh, she said you know if you want to write for television, what you do is you write a spec script, you write a sample script, an audition script for a show and um and then send you get it to an agent or send it to that show or send it to other shows 
and um, this was the way you you generally got work in in those days. And so I wrote a spec new art, and she helped me with it. And I rewrote it a lot, and I got it to where I thought it was pretty good, and I I gave it to her, and she brought it into the office at the end of the season, and then she and everyone she knew on the series left the show, and a whole new writing staff came in. <laughs> so the script was there, but nobody who knew me from Adam was there to read it. So uh, literally three years later, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was working in a, in a bookstore and, and stage managing in equity waiver theaters and trying to get an agent and writing screenplays and all that. And, and somebody from Newhart called me. I don't know why. Somebody at, at that point you know, got far enough down in the pile of scripts that, that they read my script. And they really liked it, and uh, it, it was not doable anymore because the cast had changed considerably in the three years. But uh, but they took me to lunch, and they said, uh, you know, that's a good job. We don't have any jobs for you, but at least I got a free lunch out of it. <laughs> and um, at this point, I'm 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 married. Uh, uh, my my wife is three months pregnant. We have like thirty six dollars in our checking account, and uh, we're about to about to move back to live with my parents, which for my generation at that time was a terrible thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, um, and, but, but her, her uh, Barbara's agent, uh, I guess heard that, that they had liked it. So he took a look at it and, um, and so I'll we'll send it around to some other places and see what goes. And he sent it to, cheers of all places and um and they really liked it um and so i went in a couple of times to pitch a cheers i didn't know how to pitch a show i didn't know what i was doing um somehow i guess they must have seen seen something in me they liked because they had me back like twice before i came up for well they came up with a story based on you know a kernel of an idea that i brought in and then we broke the story and then i so then my so my first television job was a freelance cheers that's not a bad way to start um, and you wrote uh, some 20 episodes of cheers i think you wrote more episodes than any individual writer i wrote more episodes than any individual writer yes I'm the the uh, the team of, of ken levine and david isaacs uh, i think beat me but but there too so that doesn't count no no and, <laughs> um, and you wrote a couple of my favorite episodes uh, a house is not a home and dinner yeah. at eightish Darren H is, is 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 my favorite of the episodes that I wrote. Uh, I, I just I really like that one. It it you know uh, Kelsey and BB were so good in it, and 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 Ted and and Shelley too. And it was it was just a, a really great. It really just flowed. It was really good, and 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 it was one of the few episodes that wasn't really that I wrote that that wasn't really rewritten a, a lot in the room because generally when you write a script. For a sitcom, um, or at least for Cheers, you uh, when it's you know it goes to the table read and and you have then you have week rehearsal and you shoot it. We should have shot it on Tuesday. We had the table read on Wednesday and shot it on Tuesday. And generally within that period of time, the script gets rewritten a lot. You know, even if even if one of the showrunners wrote it, it just it just changes. You know, the stuff doesn't work, or you come up with better stuff, or. Their angles. Every rehearsal you go through, you you know you go and you rewrite the whole script. Um, 
that script wasn't really rewritten a, a lot. That that script was was one of the one of the one of the high points. Uh, I'm I'm glad you liked that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then after I did the freelance Cheers, I did a couple of freelance New Hearts, and I did a, a freelance um, All Is Forgiven, and I did a freelance Mary, and you know, so I worked around uh, d- doing freelance work for about a year um, when my my ba- my first baby was born first daughter was born and um and then um they offered me a, a job on actually actually they they originally offered me a job on that show all is forgiven that was a um a uh, a sort of a it was another show that, that glenn and les charles were producing it was a good show it was uh bess armstrong and carol kane it was about the writing of a soap opera oh yeah it was a good show it just didn't i don't know it just didn't get much of a chance it didn't last very long but I remember they offered me that job, and I thought, well, you know, I'm doing so well as a freelance writer, and I've got a new baby. I really don't. I I, I don't really want to work that hard, you know. <laughs> and so I turned them down. And they, I think, thought, well, boy, this guy's pretty ballsy. He turns that down because he wants to offer Cheers. So okay, well, well, we'll let him see if he can handle Cheers. We'll get him to do that, and then. They offered me a job on Cheers, and then my agent now, uh, Barbara's agent, Elliot Webb, called me up and told me how much it paid, and then I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I really, I really did that move totally out of ignorance. I mean, I, 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 I should have accepted the job on All Is Forgiven. I all, all, you know, any if I had had any sense at all, I should have accepted that job. And, it, and if I'd accepted that job. That show was canceled shortly thereafter, and I would have been out of work and, and, and probably would have been able to get something else. But it wasn't like Cheers. I mean, Cheers was a, you know, was a, obviously it was a great show. It, it, it you know, it lasted for 11 years. It, it for a long time anyway, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of a, a, you know, a gateway show as far as you could go into any, any other show and say, I wrote for Cheers. And, and they'd say, wow, that's great. But that now now it's sort of receded into history, so that's not really true. But um, but for about ten years, it was it was uh, it was a it was a great uh, a great calling card. We're talking with Thief Sutton here on Downtown. Now, you've had so many successes. I'm a big fan of one of your shows that was not a success. Uh, I think it only lasted about half a dozen episodes, but uh, a brilliantly inventive series with Cloris Leachman called Thanks. Oh my God! You remember that show? Oh, that I loved it so much to me. Yeah, that 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 was one of my favorite things I ever did. I did that with my friend Mark Jordan League, and 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 we wrote that show. Thanks, and it was it was just it was a you know it was a sitcom about the Pilgrims, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, it had it had Tim Dutton and Boris Leifman and Jim Rash. Right, he was just first starting out. Was in it. Had uh, uh, Kristen Nelson and. Um, and you know it had great supporting cast at Glenn Shaddix and um, um, uh, John Fleck and 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 uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful show. I, I, I really loved it, and and I, I we didn't think it had a chance. We didn't think it had a prayer in getting on the air, and then it got on the air, and we did six episodes, and then that, and then that was it. But I always felt you know, really happy that we were able to make those six episodes. And how did you, how did you even see it? Because it had never been rerun. 
I just I remember it in its original run, and I because I'm, wow. I'm I'm a wow. huge Cloris Leachman fan, so I was well, I was yeah, in already. Yeah. But it was I just thought it was great. I liked the ensemble. I thought it was smart, and it was so different than anything else that was on yeah. the air at the time. Yeah. It was that sort of uh, that sort of you know uh, uh, silly smart kind of comedy. You know uh, we, we you know we we were modeling it after uh, a show. It was on when I was a kid called uh, Best of the West and also on to Black Adder uh, in, in England. Mm. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really, every show was a, a, a joy to do. And it didn't, you know, it, it uh, oh, I'm glad you liked that show. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a really uh, special experience for me. And it, you know, it, there, it has a tiny cult following. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and I think it's on YouTube, although don't tell anyone. No, I, I didn't hear that from you. Certainly not. Uh, you transitioned from uh, writing for half-hour comedies to hour-long dramas with uh, another great show, Boston Legal. I don't remember which actor is was supposedly uh, the one who said at first that uh, dying is easy, comedy is hard. What was it easier writing for a drama than to try and come up with a comedy? Well, it, it was it was interesting because I I did you know I, I did a couple of movies uh, uh, before that and I did a couple of hour pilots but that was my first job on a on a on an hour drama and David Kelly at the time he hired an, a number of comedy writers on his staff I guess because he wanted to get the comedy in there and he felt that he could he could do the drama um, but um, but then you you know you obviously would transition and you'd be writing you know uh there'd be you know there, there were either there were either ex-lawyers on the staff or comedy writers <laughs> and um and oddly enough we often would would be assigned the shows that we, you wouldn't have thought we would have been assigned like you know i'd get a death penalty show and the you know the lawyer would get a you know a comedy show and or a funny episode and um but it you know we all worked together and so it all it all worked um but it was it was a, it was a great show, and I do remember thinking. I remember when I, you know, the, the, there's a, there's a thing in comedy which we I call, you know, at the end of a scene, you have an end of a scene. You have to do you have to do what you call a blow. You have to you have to, right. you have to do whatever the is going on at the end of the scene happen, and then you have to do a really funny joke. You have to do the funny joke that tops everything, and it laughs. So everybody laughs, and then it goes on to a commercial or goes on to the next scene, and writing those are like the hardest thing in the world because they've got to top all the other jokes and it's, it's really, really tough. And I remember when I suddenly realized that in drama, you don't have to do that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you, you can, you can have the last line be he's dead or, or, you know, they're, they're going to sue us or, you know, they arrested him and just leave it at that. And I thought, my God, this will save me like five hours every day. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, it was a wonderful experience, and, uh, uh, and then you transitioned again into into writing novels and mysteries. Mm-hmm. But again, a writer uh, is a writer. Uh, who were the guys that you looked up to uh, as a kid? Was it uh, you know, the the Hammets, the, the Raymond Chandlers of the world? Well, sure. No, I I, I, I read Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. I loved them. I loved James Cain. I loved. Um, uh, um, Dorothy Hughes, uh, Patricia Highsmith, in the in the in the mystery era, you know the, the Donald Westlake also mm. in the mystery field. Um, 
Uh, I also read a lot of, uh, you know, horror and science fiction. So I was a big fan of like of Richard Matheson and oh, Robert yeah. Block mm. and uh, and H.P. Lovecraft and and those type of people. Um, but um, and and as I said, I, I started out writing short stories, and so I I'd always sort of you know kind of intended to to write you know short stories or novels or whatever, but I just didn't get around to it till later. Uh, but then I thought, well, I better do this before I, you know, die. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wrote one that really just wrote it for myself just to see if I could do it. And it took me a long time, although it's not a long book, but, you know, writing books is, 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 uh, I think it was Il Doctoro that said, um, you know, writing a book is like, you know, driving on a highway at night, and you can see th- what, th- what's in front of you with you, the headlights. But there's all that in front of you, and all that behind you, that you just have to take on faith. And um, and a, a a screenplay. I mean, well, a half hour comedy, you can you can kind of hold in your mind the whole time. Sure. You know, you can kind of when it, you can kind of figure out well, when uh, third act, first act, third act, they, uh, that, that that works, yeah, and all that, and and an hour one, you can almost do that too. And in the movie, you have to divide it up into three chunks, you know, to 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 do to hold it in your mind. But in a novel, I mean, forget it. I mean, <laughs> you know, by the time you're on, you know, page, you know, two hundred, you have to remember where how you where you started. I mean, it, it's it's it it's a, they're a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it takes it takes a lot of a lot of attention, and you have to. You have to do everything. You have to be the the set designer and the costume designer and the you know as well as the actor and all that. Everything you have to do. Now, when when you're writing, especially if you're writing a mystery, uh, do you do you plot it out? Do you know where you're going, or do you discover it along the way? Um, I I I, I plot it out. Um, I originally, as when I started writing novels, I would plot it out pretty thoroughly and. Now I, I, I plot it out generally, um, but I leave some room for discovery. Because I find, for instance, that when, when you're writing a mystery, um, often, you know, the solution to the mystery, you know, who who did it, not, not that I write who done it exactly, but, you know, that that is a factor in it. Um, my books are more, you know, hard-boiled mysteries, kind of like, you know, the... They want to be like Raymond Chandler or that, or or, <laughs> or, uh, or um, Donald Westlake, um, or Richard Stark. Um, but uh, often, you know, about halfway through, you think, well, that that would be a better finish. That'd be a better ending. That'd be better if this guy did it rather than that guy. And so you have to leave yourself room to to maneuver. And the nice thing about writing a book. Obviously, um, um, it, one of the nice things about writing a book, I mean, is that there isn't anybody looking over your shoulder and saying you have to do this or, this, <laughs> you know, there isn't a studio or a network. I mean, when you write a screenplay, you have to or, a, or for, for hire anyway, uh, you have to write a, an outline and you have to stick to the outline. And when you write a pilot or, or a, a episode for a television show, you have to stick to that outline. And if you make a change, you have to, you know. You have to either call them and discuss it with them or hope that they like it, um, you know, because they want to know what they're paying for, right? I mean, I, I understand that. Um, 
when I'm writing a novel, you know, which I basically, you know, write for myself, uh, though, like, you know, I do have publishers, um, uh, the, uh, you, you have the freedom to sort of think, well, the, if I did this, that would be better. And so I like to leave a little wiggle room as far as that goes. How did you, uh, how'd you get together with Janet Ivanovich? Uh, well, it's funny. When I was writing movies, uh, I wrote The Fan for uh, uh, Wendy Feinerman. And her next project she had at that time was to be an adaptation of Janet's first uh, Stephanie Plum book, um, One for the Money. Um, this was long before the version with Catherine Heigl was made. Um, and and I wrote it, so I wrote a, a couple of drafts of it, and, uh, and, it, and nothing ever happened with it. We didn't, couldn't get it together. Um, but Janet really liked what I wrote. And I got along with her really well, and we were friendly. And, you know, then, of course, she she became, you know, this huge, you know, multimillion-dollar seller of, of books and all that. And uh, But I, I kept in touch with her. And then another friend of mine named uh, uh, Lee Goldberg, who writes mystery novels as well, was doing uh, with her some books, you know, the, the uh, Fox O'Hare books. Um uh, and I just wrote to her and I said, congratulations. Uh, great. I hope you hope, hope you have success with, with Lee. And she wrote me back and said, well, do you want to do some? And I said, sure. And at that point I'd only written one book. Um, but, uh, I've well, written two books, but I only had one published. Um, and, uh, I thought this is great. So, I mean, it, it was a wonderful, I mean, for one thing you, you got to ha- have a, you know, brilliant teacher of uh, uh, how to write popular fiction that, that sells, and and you were being paid for it. So it was it was great. It was great. I loved it. We're talking with Thief Sutton it. here on downtown. It was uh, uh, not an anniversary you celebrate, I guess, but but 14 years ago on Valentine's Day, uh, certainly a life changing moment for you. I, I, I very much so. <laughs> Or a life-ending moment, almost. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had a brain aneurysm, um, and uh, you know, it, was, it was Valentine's Day night. I remember we went to see my wife and I went to see Music and Lyrics with uh, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. I don't, I don't blame that movie, but um, <laughs> uh, I, then I I went to sleep, and as far as I was concerned, I woke up three days later having had brain surgery. Um, and, uh, you know, my right side of my body was pretty much useless and my left eye was closed and I could, I could still, I could talk, I, I could talk pretty well and I could still think and, and all that. So I, I, but I had had a brain aneurysm. I'd had, my wife had been unable to wake me the next morning and I was started coughing up blood and was, I guess, swearing a lot and all that. So she called the ambulance and they they took me to the hospital and uh they did not know what was wrong with me they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and i remember i i, I was working on boston legal at the time and they they asked me if uh at one point they asked me if i'd been exposed to any toxins at work and apparently i said just james spader 
Um, <laughs> and um, uh, but they, they put me through an MRI. I don't know. They figured out that it was a brain aneurysm, and they operated on my brain for hours and opened my skull and sewed it up. And and then I, you know, I woke up and uh, I had you know, a long road. Of recovery, uh, you know, I had to learn how to walk again, and how to, you know, how to see out of my left eye. Um, but it was about six months before I was able to go back to work, and uh, and um, I felt, you know, I was able to write again, and I felt good about what I wrote. And uh, um, but it was a very, uh, a very, I mean, I mean, like. Uh, you know, 25% of the people who have what I have lived through it. Mm. Um, it, it, they were, they, the, the aneurysm actually burst while they were operating on. So wow. if it had burst, when I, you know, when, when my skull was closed, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, died. the, the and, brain comes in handy for writers. Was there, was there any fear that, that, that skill might not come back? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't really use my, my right leg for and I couldn't really uh, use my right hand too well, and 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 I just thought, what if the part of my brain that's funny uh, has has gone? You know, what if you know? I I did have a little bit of trouble with word recall um, at first, and and they, it's funny they, they would they would give me a, they they had mental tests that they would try to put me through to, to see how it was doing. And among them were like word problems in math. And, and I, I was doing, doing terribly at them. And I just said, you don't understand. I could never do this. <laughs> you know, as soon as you say a train is leaving a station at 30 miles an hour, I, 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 I totally seize up. I, I could never do them. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, so that, that, that was why I, I fortunately or unfortunately, um, right around the same time it happened, there was a writer's strike. So everyone was out of work. Um, and during that time, I, um, I wrote a couple of pieces that were some of the best stuff I've written. And, um, I felt, you know, that, you know, it, I was okay. You know, that, that was, uh, but I had, you know, I still have memory lapses. I mean, I still can, you know, people mention things that happened and I think, I don't remember that. I don't remember that, but um, it's not uh, it's not the bad, the worst thing in the world. Uh, um, uh, I'm I'm very grateful. <laughs> you uh, you also host a wonderful podcast, a Film Freaks Forever. That's uh, oh. just a, a great celebration of cinema. <laughs> yes, yes, I do that with with Mark Jordan Legan, who with, with whom I'd created uh, Thanks, and I've done a lot of stuff with and. Yeah, no, it's a great thing. We get together every week and watch movies, and we've been doing it for like 20 years. Because I've known him. We were best men at each other's weddings, and I went to college with him. And so we we always sit around and talk about movies when we're together every weekend, and other people are there. And a few times people say, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you do a podcast? And podcasts were still fairly new at the time, and or at least – my awareness of podcasts were still fairly new at the time, and yeah, no, it's it's a it's a wonderful one. We've done you know ventriloquist dummy movies and <laughs> uh, uh, robot mo- or zombie movies and uh, 
science fiction movies and and okay and, and you know good movies too. <laughs> uh, you also uh, highlighted okay. your great follow on Twitter. You highlighted tonight, and I'm glad you did because now I'm going to be locked in. It's it's one of my it's one of my favorite. I guess it's film noir. It's just so well done. Gun crazy. That's on tonight. Oh, that, that 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 yeah, that's a wonderful movie. That's a wonderful movie. That that, that I mean, there's a there's a there's a bank robbery in that that's done all in one shot from the camera in the back of a car and they run out and drive and it's just stunning. It's stunning. And, and Peggy Cummings is so good in it. And, and John Dallas too, but you know, she's absolutely fantastic in it. And she never, you know, she should have been in a, she was in a few movies, but nothing like that. I mean, she should have been a big star. I don't know why she wasn't. And, um, it's a yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Well, Faith, enjoy your work a lot, and uh, it's great for us to catch up with you this afternoon. Thank I'm, you so I'm much. Actually, right, right now, I'm I'm about to be producing a, a television show for Hallmark. So, oh, really? You can, can watch that. Too. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I'm, I, uh, it's a show called All uh, called um, uh, Chesapeake Shores that has been on for four years, but I've, I've I'm, I'm taking it over now, and and. Uh, we were supposed to shoot it this summer, but my God, something happened. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I'm about to go up to Canada uh, to shoot it um, now, and uh, it's a it's a really good show. It has Treat Williams and Dan Ladd in it, and, wow. and uh, Jesse Metcalf, and it's a it's a it's a quality show. It's a good show. I like it. Excellent. Well, we wish you luck with that, and and thanks so much for making some time for us today. Hope you come back and visit again sometime. I will, I will, and, you know, and I, I love Maine. I I go there every year, uh, but I didn't go there this year. But I I go there every year to a vinyl haven. So oh, nice, uh, lovely place. Uh, right. By the way, if you if you come here, if you're looking for an island spot, I noticed that uh, Travolta is selling his place on Islesboro, and it's a steal at five million. <laughs> yes, I I know he had a place on there because I, I occasionally would would see him at the airport, but I never talked to him. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it needs some work. I think it's a little overpriced, even for me. <laughs> I appreciate it, Fief. Hope we can do it again. Thanks a lot. That is a screenwriter and author, Thief Sutton, here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a break, get a quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and come back with singer Gino Vanelli next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. from the album Brother to Brother, produced by his brothers Joe and Ross. Ross wrote the song. That's singer-songwriter Gino Vanelli. One of the many hits he's had in his long career in the music business uh, from Montreal. 
We had a chance to talk with him recently about uh, the career, the turns his music has taken through the years. Here's Gino Vanelli on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks so much for making a little time for us today. Sure, Rich. Yeah, so what's up? Well, just uh, interested to talk with you. Been a fan of your music for a long, long time and thought we'd, uh, well, thought we'd go back to the beginning, if that's okay with you. Sure. Anything you want to know. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, from what I understand, you grew up in a pretty musical house. Yeah. My dad was a cabaret singer uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. And I had the privilege of uh, seeing him perform when I was three or four years old. I remember him in his uh, vanilla white canvas suit uh, up in Quebec City. And um, he was singing songs like Unchained Melody and, you know, Temptation and all those classics. And uh, I sort of decided then and there that was something I wanted to chase. And you were drawn to uh, to jazz drummers, people like Buddy Rich and Ed Thigpen, Gene Krupa. What was the attraction to them? Well, you know, that's a funny thing. You know, I, 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 I really did love the idea of singing uh, and music in general. But I saw um, a couple of yeah, either documentaries or movies on, I think it was one with Gene Krupa, then another one on Buddy Rich, and something kind of infiltrated inside of me, and I started tapping my hands on tables by the time I was five or six. And then by the time I was seven or eight, uh, my dad bought me a pair of bongos that I managed to um, always put over the stove because they didn't have any um, keys to tighten the skin. So the only way to tighten the skin was to heat it up. So I used to hold my bongo over the stove and make sure the skins were nice and tight. And that was good for at least an hour. And uh, then, uh, you know, by the time I was 10, um, an uncle of mine bought me a cocktail drum that was so large that I had to have a little stool uh, to stand and play on it. And so I had a cocktail drum with a cymbal and a bass drum that hit the bottom of a cocktail drum that looked like a very kind of a towering tom-tom. And for two years, I practiced on that. And then finally, um, I started, uh, I was hired as a, uh, a drummer to uh, as a relief drummer for a, a major club in, in Montreal. And I had joined a group called the Cobras when I was 12. And then my brothers and I had a series of groups on our own. Now, you also, if I, if I remember correctly, for your audition, well, you played what everybody who played the drums played back uh, at that time, and that was Wipeout. Well, that was, that was the, the rite of passage, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, if a, if a pop drummer couldn't play Wipeout, you know, he couldn't play for your band. So um, I remember coming home from school uh, I heard the twanging of a guitar and some rat-tat-tang of a snare drum uh, and a cymbal, and uh, I was drawn to it, my school bag, you know, hanging on my back. And I saw a line of kids, you know, from the ages of maybe 16 to 20 years old, uh, a line of 7 to 10 kids uh, waiting to audition for the group called the Cobras. And, uh, and um, it was in somebody's garage on the corner of a, suburban street and um so i waited in line and and uh, i was very late coming home my mom was worried about me as she told me when i got got home but um i waited in line and when came my time uh i said what do you want and they said, well just play wipeout <laughs> and i said okay no problem and <laughs> there it went and uh so they came to me and said well how old are you and i lied i said i was 13 but i was 12 
and uh, I just wanted to be a teenager. But they said, if, if you want to join the group, you're welcome to join the group. And I, I was elated. So I went home late. So my mom was mad. But I said, well, the good news is, though, I just joined the group. And she was further <laughs> furious. <laughs> now, also, when you were a young man, you embraced classical music, too. Was, was that the influence of your father? A little bit, because my father had, uh, uh, you know, inklings towards opera and, and things of that nature. But really, that came about because in our elementary school, every first or last Thursday of the month, uh, we had um, free passes to go see the Montreal Symphony rehearse. And um, almost like a dress rehearsal before their concert. And so... It started off one Thursday, I went, and they were doing, uh, I think they were playing, uh, practicing the piece by Ravel called Daphne and Chloe. And I marveled at the harmonies and the sounds that just, to me, um, it wasn't sound. It was, it was images that it was evoking. And I was so, um, I was so impassioned by it that, that I, I said, where did that sound come from? So that, that also became a real deep passion and hobby of mine to study the orchestra and how it was made and, and, and the, the range of violins and what the role of the tuba was and the glockenspiel and so on and so forth. So from the ages of about nine or 10 on, that also was a hobby of mine. And so by the time I, I, I got to where I was signed up to a and I already had a good understanding of what the symphony orchestra was. We're talking with Gino Vanelli here on Dantel. Well, let's talk, if we can, about uh, getting signed by A&M Records. And, uh, well, you were you had an opportunity, and you took advantage of it in, in the parking lot, right, when you tracked down Herb Alpert? Well, you know, it was an interesting lesson. You know, uh, the lesson was, of course, I had been in, in, in Los Angeles for four months, knocked on practically every door, and every door was shut in my face. By the time I was 20, 21 years old, and um, I, I just stopped into a church one day, fell asleep, and felt I knew what to do, almost like I, as if I'd seen the movie role or the trailer. And uh, I sat or stood in front of um, A&M gates for about two, three hours, and when I saw Herb come out, I just uh, ran through the gate, accosted him, and um, pulled away by the guard, but uh, finally Herb asked me what I wanted and, and pulled me away from the clenches of the guard. And, and uh, I just said, give me a chance to just play for you. And I, I came back 30 minutes later and did so. And that's when I started my career at a and Records. So the lesson was not only perseverance um, and just keep doing it and keep, keep going, and even in the face of all adversity or darkness or, you know, don't surrender, but it was also a lesson in that perhaps there is something in ourselves that we don't know, some machination or some wheel works that exist that um, has the ability to guide us uh, where there is no guide. It was, it was a great lesson in both, in, in both things. You ended up with your first uh, top 40 hit in the States with People Gotta Move in 1974. Was that a, a surreal experience to hear yourself on the radio? You know, it, it kind of was, but the way I was wired is that I was looking for what was wrong with the record. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I could do to improve upon, you know, production and singing and so on and so forth. 
And certainly by the time we recorded Storm of Sun Up in 1975, I, I think I had uh, made some leaps and bounds, you know, in regards to my own ability. You also uh, toured with Stevie Wonder and uh, ended up ended up performing on Soul Train. What was that experience like? Well, you know, Stevie, uh, you know, was at, at a, a hotel uh, that I was staying at, and I was kind of napping, and I heard um, Crazy Life, the title of my first album, being sung, and it, lo and behold, it was Stevie. And so we, we exchanged hugs, and uh, he asked me then and there, open up or to play with him for seven or eight concerts because Chaka Khan was not going to be uh, available. And uh, I, of course, I wanted to, but I was a little hesitant. Um, I asked him, I said, am I, you know, going to be slaughtered or what? <laughs> he, and he said, no, he had a very, very, very you know, cool audience. And lo and behold, he was right. Um, for the seven or eight concerts that took place, I, I enjoyed myself immensely. And Stevie was very, very gracious. Uh, he gave me consideration for all things, sound checks and all that. And um, while I think I was in Cleveland or Cincinnati, I got a call from Don Cornelius, who heard about the tour. And um, by that time, people got a move, was climbing the charts, especially the R&B charts. I think it was top 10. Gave me a call and um, asked me to do Soul Train. And I told him, I said, well, I said, you know, do you, think, do you know that I'm white? <laughs> yeah, but here we, we think we consider you off-white, so he's just coming to the show. <laughs> I love it. Uh, 1978, uh, you released what became a tremendous success, uh, the Brother to Brother album, and it really was a, a family affair produced by your brothers. Uh, your brother Ross uh, wrote the, the giant hit, I Just Want to Stop, which is one of those songs. I actually just heard it on our station about an hour ago. And it's one of yeah. those songs that's just so timeless. You hear it today, and it sounds as fresh as it did then. Yeah, you know, I, I was I had a pretty good career going by the mid seventies. I was selling out every theater and doing the kind of music I really wanted to do. And Brother Joe um, really kind of advised me that I ought to be thinking about broadening the audience, expanding, and maybe having a big hit single. And I I I I, I wanted it. Rich, but I, it's some part of me knew that once I crossed that threshold and really had that kind of success, I would be for, forever chasing it. So I was reluctant. But Ross came to me uh, with the uh, with a pretty good sketch of I just want to stop and um, kind of smell blood in the waters, and uh, you know we produced it, and and of course the rest is history. And uh, back with your next album, Nightwalker, another top 10 hit with Living Inside Myself. But at that point, were you chasing it or were you still able to make the kind of music you wanted to make? Well, I found out by that time uh, that I could actually maybe have my cake and eat it too. And in, in this sense, that I could pursue an album of filled with ideas, musical ideas that were echoing and reverberating in my head. At the same time, be conscious of the fact that it was, uh, it would be very beneficial to have a lot of airplay, you know, and to be on radio. But I, I didn't, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't pursue it um, as one would pursue wholeheartedly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, to be so cognizant that, that you're aiming every detail towards having a single. It just came, I just... Um, I wrote a song called Living Inside Myself, 
And so, oh, this maybe could be a thing. Oh, wow. I like the song anyways, whether it is or not. And um, then the more I played it for myself, I demoed it. I said, you know what? I, I, I think I think Arista will like this as a single. They did, but they didn't really want to release it as a single until they computer tested it and did all kinds of crazy <laughs> things. And then uh, finally they, they told me, well, it doesn't test that really well. I said, I, I don't, you know, people are not under normal situation when they're being tested while they're hearing music. You know, it's kind of like the dating game. You know, when people say they want a date, it's very much different which of which they would probably date. In any case, um, we released it, and it, and I think got to number five or six. Uh, in the 90s, you got to really explore your love of jazz with a couple of terrific albums, uh, Yonder Tree and Slow Love. Is it great to have that freedom to really uh, just think about making the kind of music that you love? Yes, that's a good question, Rich. Uh, I think at a certain point, you know, after uh, the success of Black Cars, First Be in Love and Wild Forces, especially worldwide, I was nearing 40 years old, and I said, you know what, this is going to end, and um, I don't want to chase this anymore. Uh, I have so many ideas musically that if I box myself, if I paint myself into a corner, I'm going to be so frustrated. So I, I began to pursue uh, the, um, let's say, the more esoteric or the more sidetrack or service road kind of music, where those who want to stop and listen can stop and listen. And uh, it was a bit of a, a change of um, perspective because, you know, you're not going to release something and, and like you're under tree and expect, you know, to see, hear your, your, your voice on the radio, you know, 20 times a day. So you have to set yourself up emotionally for that. And I did. And, and uh, so after the years of pursuing that, I got to do a lot of things like, um, you know, the sing and, and write and orchestrate for the Metropole Orchestra, 60-piece orchestra in, in the Netherlands, and it's a really fine record that came out called the North Sea. Uh, and uh, then do things like Canto with uh, classical orchestras, and then get to play with various classical orchestras from South America to North America and Europe. And uh, I actually get to perform for Pope John Paul because of that classical. And, and those early days of listening to classical music as an elementary school kid, really uh, paid off because I really had it inside of me and I really knew what direction would sound best for my voice. And, and, I, I wrote about and, and Canto and, and the performance for the Pope really began, as I understand it, with a song that you recorded as a, a tribute to your father. Yes, called Parole per mio padre, and it means the words to my father. And um, my father had just passed away a couple of years earlier. And I, I wrote some sort of a, maybe a musical eulogy, you'd call it, and that's what Parole Per Mio Padre. And somehow, some way, Pope John Paul got to hear the song, which was recorded prior to Canto, on an album by Niels Landoki, a piano player from Denmark that I produced. He, wanted to, he liked the song so much, he wanted to play the piano part to it, and that I did it on his record. And that was the first recording of it. And somehow, some way, Pope John Paul heard that, and I got a call from the Vatican uh, to, to ask me to perform that song for the Pope. 
Uh, your most recent album, Wilderness Road, is uh, absolutely terrific. I love I love the bluesy feel of uh, older and wiser. I almost uh, you picture Sinatra in a, in a little uh, Sinatra in a little <laughs> club late at night. And and the woman upstairs is a great song too. You know, the woman upstairs. I really uh, I'm very partial to that because um, night that you should mention it because it's a true story. There was oh, wow. uh, a terrible thing going on upstairs. A, a woman was being battered every night and. Those days, nobody wants to say anything about it, you know, and um, eventually it ended in tragedy, and and that's what the song depicts. Uh, you've also turned uh, to writing uh, in a different realm, and that's uh, with your book, Stardust in the Sand. Is it great to have that additional creative outlet? It is, because a lot of people, like in this interview, a lot of people ask me questions, and sometimes as we're conversing, uh, images you know, and, and memories come up that, that I almost forgot. And as I was just jogging my memory, um, trying to write some uh, liner notes for an album called Best and Beyond, the liner notes became so detailed that the record company, uh, which was Azura Records from, from Rome, asked me to, 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 to expand it and to, to write a little compendium or, a, you know, a little journal or... And that's what I did. That's what Stars and the Sand is. It's sort of a, a journal of, of how I felt before and after many songs that people know. And the awkward moments of meeting a lot of famous artists uh, that I met over the course of 30, 40 years. You know, we're up here in uh, Boston Celtics country. We have fond memories of Geno time at the Garden a few years back. <laughs> <laughs> but some things happen all by the random self, so... What that is. Well, uh, Gino, it's been great to talk with you. I've enjoyed your music for a, a long time. Uh, great to see you out there continuing to make music, and uh, hopefully when, when the world turns around uh, to get back performing for the fans as well. And we really appreciate you making time for us today. Well, it's been my pleasure, Rich. You take care. That is Gino Vanelli here on Downtown. Always interesting to get the backstory. And uh, our thanks to him, Thief Sutton as well, who... You know, writing is writing, sure, but to have a successful career as a screenwriter for TV shows and then to to turn around, I mean, really, if you think just that transition from half-hour comedies like Cheers and Newhart to hour-long, mostly dramas like Boston Legal, mm. that in and of itself is a pretty impressive transition. It really is, and uh, geez, I had a chance to watch Thanks this weekend. Wasn't that great? Wow, that was <laughs> yeah. That show should should be back on. Yeah. it was it was uh, one of those ones that held up incredibly well, and may have suffered just from from a little ahead of its time. I think so. Wait, you found it on YouTube? I did. Nice. Well, Fee thought it might be there. Yeah, check it out. Only I think only six episodes, mm -hmm. but yeah, a terrific cast led by Cloris Leachman. Hard to go wrong with her, but uh, but very smart, funny writing. That's uh, what Thief Sutton is known for. Our thanks to him and Gino Vanelli and to you for being with us. Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. See you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.